Carlotta Getsch and this is Waking Youth, a podcast dedicated to reminding us to not sleepwalk through our waking state. Today we're having a chat with Yang Mei Oi. Yang Mei is a former lawyer, podcaster, performance artist, best-selling author and she has been blogging for over 10 years now. Her cross-cultural blog Fusion View gained 10,000 unique views a month and was featured on the BBC. She is the co-author of the Social Media Chapters of International Communication Strategy, published by Kogan Page. And she currently runs Tiger Spirit, a multimedia blog on creativity. In 2015... Young May published the memoir Bound Feet Blues, a life told in shoes based on her beautiful one-hour solo stage performance named Bound Feet Blues, where she steps in the shoes of several people in her life and family lineage. I originally sat with Young May in the winter of 2020. So I'm very happy to finally bring you this episode where we explore a lot of topics ranging from our experiences with performances of femininity to the beauty and struggles around creative living and the hidden treasures lost in our family histories. Let's dive in. So welcome, Young May. I'm very happy you're here with me at the Waking Youth Podcast. Um, the first question, um, because I like to ground things in the personal and personal history, why don't you tell us if you had um, an experience um, of creativity and storytelling in your childhood? Um, yes, I, I think my childhood was all about storytelling. Um, and I loved, um, my mum would tell me uh, and tell us stories. I'm the oldest of three children. Um, and I just loved hearing stories um, from her and from my grandma. Um, and they would tell stories about their childhood, uh, as well as stories. Uh, and, and my mom, of course, would read with me. Um, and she would go to movies. Um, and she would go out um, in the evening, um, every now and then with my dad, I guess for date night. Um, and they'd go to a movie. Um, and she'd come back and she'd tell me the story of the movie, or tell us the story of, of the movie she saw um, and we would go um, as a family to see movies uh, and um, at that time my favorite uh, was The Sound of Music um, and apparently she tells me I was about two or three years old and I knew all the songs and I would sing them all um, uh, but I also um, at bedtime I would ask her to tell the stories uh, to tell the story of the sound of music um, and we would all be in in our bedroom in in bed and she would uh, be sitting with us and she'd tell the story and then I'd say mom mom you have to sing all the songs so my poor old mum had to sing all the songs in the sound of music <laughs> um, and sometimes I remember this I guess I was a bit older now by, by this time um, 
And I do remember um, uh, she'd be telling the story, um, and and we we would laugh about it now. Um, now that we're you know I'm, uh, we're elder, I'm uh, my siblings and I are adults. We'd laugh about it, and I'd say, um, and she'd say, "Oh, I was so bored telling you the story of the sound of music for the hundredth time and singing all the songs." And I remember sometimes she'd fall asleep in the middle of telling the story, and I'd shake her, "Mum, mum, mum, wake up! You haven't finished the story yet." Um, and so. Then as I grew up, uh, I grew older, um, I, I loved um, Enid Blyton and uh, Secret Seven, Famous Five, Nancy Drew, um, Hardy Boys, as I got, um, uh, as I grew out of Enid Blyton. Um, and then um, my mum also loved reading um, and she would read her, her grown up books um, and she um, I, then I would ask her to tell me the stories of those books and and so we were always telling stories and I also uh, then when I was old enough I was about 11 I suppose 11 or 12 I started reading grown-up books and that was very exciting and one of the um, first books uh, I the two books I remember that were very precious to me was The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. Um, I remember seeing a black and white movie uh, on TV late at night that was an adaptation of The Woman in White. So I wanted the book um, and I was in Malaysia. Uh, we, we, um, I was born in Malaysia and grew up there and I couldn't find it in any of the bookshops. And I wrote to my uncle in uh, London um, and asked him to buy me a copy of The Woman in White. And he did and he posted it. And it was so exciting to get it, and I've still got it with me about 40 years later. Um, and the other book uh, that I loved um, was Gone with the Wind. Uh, and I watched it in the cinema. It was three hours long. And I just remember being completely blown away by this film that was made in 1939. It's quite stylized. Um, you know, nowadays we would say there are some issues in terms of the portrayal of uh, the African-American characters. But um, at the time, in terms of the story, I just loved it um, and the music. And um, and so I got the book and it was, I think, 800 pages. So some, it was in this enormous thick book and I just read it and read it and I just absolutely loved it. And that was the time, I guess, I, I I formed this idea, this dream that I wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, when I when I read your book, it really feels like you're taking us or taking me in this journey through your childhood. Um, and I'm curious to you talk a lot about um, your experience in college as well. Um, and you talk about how writing was always a part of your life and storytelling was always a part of your life. Um, and I found that ability that you have of, of analyzing and beautifying your experience uh, wonderful. Um, but there's something here that I, I really want to explore. And, and there are actually two tensions. So this tension between, uh, on one hand, having this love for writing um, and for analyzing the world and for beautifying it. Um, on the other hand, uh, also knowing what society expects of you. Um, and you, you pursued a degree in law. So that's one of the things I'm curious to explore. And on the other hand, there seems to be another tension. Um, it seems like your mother did a wonderful job at really nurturing your creativity and this love for storytelling. Um, and one of the things that, that struck me was also this tension between, on one hand, you admiring her femininity, 
And on the other hand, being a tomboy yourself. Um, and so I'm curious about these two tensions and even exploring whether they intersect at any point. Um, so what about, we can begin perhaps in the, in the femininity. Uh, as you were, like you uh, looked up to your mother in that sense that you, you asked her to tell you this, the stories, uh, did you also look up to her for her femininity? Did you also wanted to develop your femininity or did, were you already thinking of, of, of feeling like it was an imposition to your tomboy, um, to your tomboy, um, the desire to be more of a tomboy? That's, those are two really good questions and there's such a lot there. Um, I, um, with the tomboy and femininity, I think I loved just running around and riding my bike and playing, um, um, playing, uh, reenacting some of the stories that I would watch on TV um, and uh, cowboys and Indians. And again, these days there there are issues around games like that. Um, but at the time I was watching, this was the 1960s, those cowboy movies, and um, I was watching um, war movies. And uh, I loved also um, the Avengers uh, and Mission Impossible, the TV series. Um, and I would um, make my poor brother and sister and all my cousins, come on, let's play Mission Impossible or let's play the Avengers. And I would always want to be the hero. Um, there was the character Jim, who was the leader in the Mission Impossible TV series. There was John Steed um, in the Avengers and um, all the other myriad of heroes um, in Westerns and war movies and adventure stories and I loved um, also Alistair MacLean, um, the, 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 his, his novels, um, there was always um, adventures and, um, and, and I suppose it was because out there in the culture, uh, in TV and books, um, at that time in the 1960s, um, it, uh, and also I guess historically, um, men were the heroes, they got out there, they were the ones who fought the bad guys, um, they were the ones who uh, solved the mysteries um, and um, and and got into fights uh, and and won the fights. You know, Biff, Wham, uh, all those Superman comics. They were um, uh, uh, they were just um, they were all about action, activity, um, heroism, um, and of course there were heroines uh, and in those movies and stories um, there were women but they tended to be um, more passive. They were the ones to be rescued. They um, they were like that uh, ca cartoon character Penelope Pitstop in um, The Wacky Races, um, and she would just stand by her little pink car and go, help, help, I'm Penelope Pitstop, help me. Um, and um, it was boring to be the girl, um, boring to be just sort of sitting there. You know, there would be no game if we were all just the girls, because we just sit there. And um, uh, somebody had to be the action hero. Somebody had to um, take charge of the story. Um, and of course, yes, though, uh, I love Nancy Drew and there are other uh, girl and uh, heroines. And in fact, when the woman in white, um, the main character is Marianne Hartley, a, a woman, and uh, Gone with the Wind, the main character is Scarlett O'Hara. Um, and um, so, so I think that's why I loved, um, I, I loved those uh, stories. Um, the, Gone, uh, the Gone with the Wind and The Woman in White. Um, but overall, it's the men who have who have the heroic part. Um, 
so I think that really very much led into my tomboyness. Um, and also in the 1960s, um, that was the beginning of women's lib. Um, and I was a, 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 a bad tempered, naughty six, seven year old. Um, and I wanted to speak up. Um, around the dining table or in the family. If I had an opinion, I wanted to speak up and, and share my opinion. Um, but um, uh, there's a culture um, that uh, actually girls should be quiet and demure and not mouthy. Um, and uh, it's the boys who get the chance to speak up. Um, and even now, uh, a couple of years ago, so I was 50 something, my brother equally 50 something. We were back in Malaysia with fam uh, for a family event. Um, and we were just sitting, sitting around chatting and um, we were just laughing. And some of my older cousins and aunties and uncles were, you know, were saying that, you know, um, but they described me as bossy, um, but whenever my brother um, sort of behaved in the same way, um, they listened to him. Um, and so I was laughing, um, but you know, there's some, there's a truth in it that that was a frustration. It's like, why is it when I do something, I'm considered bossy, but when he does something, he's considered masterful. And bossy, is, of course, is a negative uh, description, whereas masterful is positive. Why can't I be masterful or mistressful um, and uh, seen to be seen in that positive way? Um, so I think that the cultural aspects, as, as much as anything, fed into this sense of identity as a tomboy. Um, I wanted to be the hero of my own life, um, a bit like David Copperfield. Um, uh, I, I suppose he questioned whether he was going to be the hero of his own life. I was sure I'm, I am the hero of my own life. Um, but of course, for a woman to say that, um, it's quite shocking. It's, um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's considered maybe arrogant, whereas if a man says that, oh yeah, sure. Um, and um, so when I uh, was with my mum, uh, she always dressed beautifully um, and she uh, loved uh, getting Vogue and Tatler and all those magazines. And in Malaysia, um, she had a good tailor. So she would um, get the latest fashions from the magazine and um, take the photo to her tailor and said, look, can you make me this dress? So she had these most amazing up-to-date dresses in Malaysia. Um, uh, uh, far away from the swinging 60s of London, London swinging London. Um, and uh, many of her friends and family would always uh, be fascinated um, when when she ca she came to a party or went went home to visit her parents in, in, in the Taiping away from um, Kuala Lumpur, uh, which is the capital city, because they say, oh, what, um, you know, what new outfit would May be wearing, um, you know, the latest fashions, mm -hmm. um, and she would make sure that her hair was in the latest fashion, so she had a beehive um, when that was in fashion, she had a page boy cut when that was in fashion, um, and um, she was beautiful and glamorous, um, and actually she still is um, in her 80s, um, and I thought, well, okay, when I'm 18, I will magically become just like that. I'll magically want to be feminine. I'll magically be glamorous, just like her, just like in the fairy stories, you know, when the ugly duckling is transformed into the swan. It's it, in those stories, it's not a process. It just happens overnight. Um, and I thought, well, I'll worry about that when I'm 18. Right now, I just want to, you know, muck around in my shorts and, and t-shirt and, and, and get sweaty and, and dirty and, uh, and all that. Um, but of course, 
that doesn't really happen in real life. Um, mm-hmm. And I found myself at 18 um, at Oxford. Um, actually, I, I read English um, and I, I did law as my second uh, qualification. Okay. Um, and um, I, I felt awkward and having to um, suddenly um, transform myself uh, from this um, rather unglamorous tomboy um, into the woman that I wanted to become. And it was um, a conscious effort of looking at fashions and, and changing what I wore and um, wearing different shoes, um, changing my hair, uh, starting to wear jewellery. It was a process that probably took me about a year or so, mm-hmm. um, but it was conscious and I was determined and I willed my new self into being, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that you stop here because it's the perfect moment to read a little bit of your book, Bound Feet Blues. Uh, so let me go ahead. Okay. Um. This is a bit of a challenge with the mic. So let's see. So um, correct me if my pronunciation of the names is not is not correct, um, but this is the part where you're you're uh, telling us a little bit about your experience in college and like you were saying, like you were trying to step on different shoes and just exploring femininity and your identity and your sexuality, more your identity. Um, and this is the moment where you decide to go with your friends to a party and you um, choose to put yourself in the shoes of Winnie. <laughs> so we'll find out who Winnie is. Um, mm, um, let's see. I contemplated this idea of me. This me who was feminine and desirable. So this is referring to Winnie. When you're going to this party, just to give a little bit of context, when you're going into a party in college and you actively and you consciously decide to act um, this character of Winnie, which is a more, um, I would say, the idealized women to the eyes of, of, of society, a more passive women that is able to explore her sexuality um so i contemplated this idea of me this me who was feminine and desirable as if i was seeing a statue of the venus for the first time i walked around her inspected her from top to toe like a pygmalion with his new creation i played with her tried her out in different settings dressed her up and dressed her hardly in anything at all and then you go on into your beautiful reflections um, and you tell the interaction with two men and then you go on and say, and yet I also despised her. I despised how she was so willing to listen and ooh-hoo and ha-ha and to hardly speak except in appreciation or praise. How she played down her own intelligence, used her body as a bait. I despised how she became invisible other than, other than as a sparkly mirror in which they could see the best of themselves. And I want to explore this mirror because I read Virginia Woolf with Celia. 
I was jealous of Todd and Edmund and men like them who found it so easy to see the best of themselves in the eyes of girls like Winnie. They took the heroic image of themselves that she gave to them and fed on it, growing bigger and bolder as they took their place in the world. But what if she also gave them her intelligence, her opinions, her thoughts, her views, those that were her own and not an echo of theirs, her boldness and ambition, her drive to take her own place in the world, would they walk away as other men had walked away from me, who was just, a, who was just me without the weenie? Or would they be willing to be the mirrors that reflected back to her the best of herself, the hero that she could be too? And then I have to read this too. Um, you move on a little bit and say, um, I, would I would never see Todd and Edmund again. And that was fine with me. I didn't want to think about how they might have responded to me if I had turned up that party as just me. Without the stilettos, without the heavy makeup, without the dumb act. If I had engaged with them as an equal, discussed Wittgenstein and Chomsky with the same order they had talked passionately about the great Victorian novels that I loved, ventured to tell them about my ambition to write my own novel someday. Winnie never came back. I couldn't express it at the time, but as much as I loved the power she gave me over the men at the party, I had a sense that she was casting out true power of the mind. Yet, even as I let her slip off into that night, I knew that she had left something precious with me her sensuality, her enjoyment of her body, her confident sexuality, her mischievousness and feline playfulness. They were all mine now. Um, so I don't know if this is a little bit awkward for you, but I just thought that it would be lovely to read um, some, some, some bits of your book. Um, and Thank you. That was lovely. Um, and if I was playing the girly, I'd go, oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Oh, my. That was a bit awkward. But actually, stepping into my power. Thank you. I think that was fab. Yay. Because um, I wouldn't be a writer if I if I if I didn't think that I had something to say exactly. and get it published. Um, and I wouldn't be proud of, you know, I wouldn't be a proper writer if I wasn't proud of what I what I wrote um, mm -hmm. and how I how it expresses how I feel. So I think for the purposes of your podcast, um, and at the risk of um, general society saying, oh my God, that Yang Mei Ui, she's so arrogant. I'm gonna say, thank you, that was fab. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very glad you bring that up. And I think that especially, well, I don't wanna generalize experiences, but I do feel like women have more challenges stepping into their power precisely because of what, what you described before. And I feel this myself that sometimes I don't wanna be in the spotlight. Um, and, and I think this is related to this femininity because like you, um, I feel, I know, I think I can distinguish between, I would, let's, let's try to name this, my neutral self, so myself that thinks that is intellectual and that is curious about the world. And then there's also the wingy part of me that knows how to play with men and how to play the social script of what it is to be sexy, right? And, and I also, I think I would have the, also the more aggressive side in me um, that perhaps you'll, you'll, you'll talk a little uh, later. But the question that I ask for you is, 
you know, I don't know if if all women experience this and and if they analyze this inside themselves. But my question for you is, do you think, because you do describe this stepping into the shoes of Winnie as something that gives you power, but do you think that that power is real? And do you perhaps think now looking back with with more maturity that... um, that actually using that as power might be toxic for you and take you, take you away from your authenticity? Yes, that's a really good question. And I'd love also to ask you, um, throw that back at you, that when you um, uh, are your neutral yourself um, and in the company of men, um, do you find yourself playing um, your version of a you know ditzy kind of ooh, ah, um, and not actually um, maybe disagree or state your opinions in a you know in, in th- th- that angry part of you in a, in a forceful way because you c- you concede to them already um, before actually there is any dialogue they have already quote unquote won um, because they mm-hmm. have stepped up into the spotlight and you're just going, no, 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 please, you go ahead, you talk, you're, you know, you, you be the star, I'll just sit here in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a, a lovely, lovely question. Um, I, I thought a lot about this um, because I do think that it affects me in all areas of my life. Um, and to be very honest with you, I, I think this was mostly toxic but there's a part of this act that I think became part of my identity. And I want to bring up, uh, and I would love to listen to your thoughts as well. Um, um, there's this philosopher, Slavov Žižek. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's, like, he's known as the Brockstar philosopher because he really provoked more than um, claiming uh, or introducing new theory. His job in the world is to really provoke. And he talks, uh, there's the YouTube video where he's talking about um, the differences and similarities, or he's trying to generalize the experience of men and women in bed and how they're uh, different or similar. And his thesis is that um, women are much more in their heads. And while in the act of making love, they are actually taking themselves out, distancing themselves from that moment and already, uh, already picturing themselves remember that moment. So they are observing both the, the male, but also themselves through the eyes of the male. So in a way they're objectifying their, their, themselves and objectifying their experience, while the men is more um, just enjoying the sensations and, and really taking pleasure from, the, from, the, from the, what he's seeing, from the touch. And, and his claim is that women in some way because of the the influence of the male gaze, objectify their own bodies and and their desire is the other's desire. And to be very honest with you, um, I did recognize this in my personal experience uh, to to a certain extent, because I knew what the perfect body or the most feminine um, way to act was. And And I acted, But then I saw that also the kind of people that I was attracting and the kind of relationships I was having were very, very superficial. Um, And it was all about me being desired and not being myself. And when I found people, and to be honest, I had experience with all kinds of people from all uh, men and women, I understood that love, um, 
and even the sexual experience because the sexual experience i think when it when 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 you're when you're having when you're making love because uh you want to act this movie of playing roles that's not making love that's having sex and i think that's the difference because then when you understand what love is and the connection you have with someone it it just stops being about the act it's about you experiencing the energy of that person and so for me now like i said i think that part of my identity uh, has become like so part of this act of what it is it is to be a woman has become part of my identity because we are social beings and we are a social construction but to be very honest with you like I, I actually brought this up in, in the Celia's class when we were talking about these identities. I think that what is true about us, it's not the sex, it's not the gender, it's not the nationality, it's something much more uh, that goes, something that goes much more to the core. So as much as, as, as it is possible, I try to, you know, even observe my behaviors and to try to understand, am I doing this to please others? Right? Am I choosing this, I don't know, opportunity? Am I doing this podcast to be seen acting in this way and being desired or because I, I want to achieve this and I, I want to um, have this impact on the world, right? Because this is connected to my core values. And so I'm start touching on the values here, but I, I want to open the discussion with you. Um, and I have no idea if I answered your question. <laughs> I think you've put, you've described it very beautifully and you've connected the sense of ourselves as sexual beings uh, with our larger, I suppose, wider uh, persona of, of being out in the world. Um, and that is quite a huge arc, and, but, but very, very true. Um, and, and we are obviously in ourselves a single continuum, but sometimes we inhabit one aspect uh, of that of that spectrum, of that continuum, um, with more intensity, with more vibrancy um, uh, than 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 at another time. So, um, uh, in in an intimate situation with our lover and partners, um, we are um, we allow that sexual sexual self to come to come uh, out. Um, um, whereas when you're you know uh, out there in business and in in um, in, in your work, um, it's not quite appropriate to have that um, aspect of yourself, but it's still it's still there, um, and you we then become uh, our business selves, our work selves, um, and I think where the continuum is maintained, then that is about aligning ourselves with ourselves and our values. And we'll, we'll, we'll move on to values in, in a bit. Um, but I think where that is fragmented, where we cut off, um, we break that, 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 that golden, beautiful thread um, and, uh, and compartmentalize our different selves so that we're in boxes rather than as one fluid being, um, then I think that can, can, be um, very, very damaging to our health and our psychological and emotional health. Um, and so I think what you bring up is a very, very um, important um, uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, to pick up on your question um, and this discussion, I think, um, so Winnie 
um, I it was it was playful. It was part of the make believe, I suppose, that started back in my childhood when I was playing Let's Pretend. And, and in those days, I was John Steed and I was the hero. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose in that moment in my um, tw- early 20s, um, I was 18 or 19, uh, maybe 20, um, I was um, playing with Let's Pretend to be this beautiful, sexy woman. And it was my construct and my understanding of what that woman might be. Um, and it was amusing because uh, I could I could see the feminine power that she had that I had on these young men, um, and it was fun to have them fetching drinks for me. It was fun to see them trying to vie for my attention uh, to win the princess's hand, if you like. And I had not experienced that power before. And at the same time, as I said, it was disempowering because it wasn't me. Well, it was me because I manifested her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, in those days, in those early days, um, she stayed with me, but in a fragmented way. uh, So that later on, when I came to London, I started work as a lawyer. I had a number of um, very dashing and handsome and successful boyfriends. And I... um, kind of took the feminine sensuality, that feminine um, um, persona, and I I wore it like a suit of armour. I wore it like, it was the 80s, I wore it like the big shoulder pads and the big hair. It was was a costume in some ways. And it was disconnected from who I was. Mm. Um, And that was, that, that sent me, that made me sad. It made me depressed. It made me unhappy. Um, and uh, later on, um, I, I came out and I then had relationships with women and I manifested more of the tomboy persona because I felt that I could be that part of myself. It felt comfortable. It felt safe. It felt fun. It gave me a certain energy um, that uh, and I couldn't. I felt that I couldn't be tomboy with men. And of course, that's not true. It was the particular men that I um, seemed to be drawn to because I know um, an, a number of straight women who are tomboys um, with their uh, with their husbands and, and long-term partners. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to tar men with just a single brush. It would be too um, facile um, and disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just in this particular situation for me, I felt that I... Um, couldn't be myself um, with the particular kind of men that I wanted in my life um, at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, over time, I it, it became lopsided in the wrong direction. Um, and I found myself missing an element of who I am. And so more recently, in the last couple of years, I've um, um, rediscovered my feminine feline sexy self um i think it was perhaps related to doing the show uh the the theater show version of bound feet blues when i was um uh, um having to explore the different physical manifestations of tomboyness and femininity and then becoming um being um uh, uh, drawn to uh, to a more public um, 
presence because of publicizing the show, uh, giving talks. Um, um, I was invited to do a TEDx talk. All these public aspects of my creative work um, put me into a position where, well, I had to dress up. So how do I dress up? Um, and I um, I adapted my tomboy style to a more feminine style. I would never, you know, be completely super uber femme again. Um, but it, in terms of the way that I dress, I'm still, uh, you know, I wear jeans and trousers, jackets, um, but there's a feminine touch to to how I dress. I, I started wearing lipstick, um, put on earrings, um, you know, um, uh, jewellery, uh, uh, all that sort of thing. And and I suddenly thought my, my body responded to that. And in a way that um, clothing, I think, helps you feel a certain way. So if you think about uh, in very extreme uh, ways, the Victorian dress, there's a there's a bodice, a corset, you have to sit up very straight um, and stand very straight and you walk in a particular way um, and you see it in costume dramas. And if, uh, if an actress walked in her modern persona in a Victorian drama, you think, oh, there's something wrong, that's not quite right. Um, so similarly, putting on something more feminine um, made my body appreciate its sensuality um, and I think all throughout my life I've always actually enjoyed and loved my body and again uh, this is shocking in out in culture out there because where we as women are supposed to hate our bodies this is wrong that's wrong this is too small this is you know too big um you know that that sketch does my bum look big in this well actually I think I've got a rather lovely bum you may not think so other people may not think so but I think so um and so I've always enjoyed um my body sensually and sexually and I think maybe Winnie had a part to play in that because by uh putting on that persona that time all those years ago I learned uh, I discovered uh how much I enjoyed being sensual in my body as as in that extract that you 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 read out um and that stayed with me um and that I've taken through to all with all my relationships um with men and women um and so now in my 50s um rediscovering my femininity means that I've redefined for myself what it means to be feminine and what it means to be a woman, a woman specifically who is me. Um, and um, I enjoy I enjoy making love with um, my partner uh, and I enjoy looking good in my um, uh, feminine clothes uh, that are my particular brand of femininity. Um, I'm, there's also a streak of tomboyness. I'm, I'm this mix. Um, and so where Winnie and um, was a performance of femininity and in my 20s going out with men in a, in a, in a culture where I felt I had to be a particular way, all that was a performance of femininity. Mm -hmm. um, but now the two aspects are melded. It's a, it's a, not a performance, but a being. It's a being of, fem of that's being a femininity. That's not quite the right phrase, but you, you know, that yeah. sense of um, alignment uh, that's internal as well as external. It's a, it's an expression of who mm -hmm. I am. Yes. And 
um, I, I think you raised a couple of, of intriguing points that I want to highlight. Uh, one of them is uh, you also at some point, I don't know in, in which book or, or, <laughs> or, or if it was, this was in the performance, but you talked about this idea that um, the, the shoes, the high heel shoes, the stilettos, are actually a wonderful, wonderful metaphor for this performance of femininity. Uh, and for that more the initial one where it's more performed and not authentic because I do think like I agree with you there that we can have an authentic performance of femininity if this even makes sense but I think that the key is about the inner kid that you also introduced and I, I want to talk about the shoes because I don't know if all women feel like that this maybe it is one of those things that everyone feels not, not everyone talks about but I hate wearing high heel sh shoes too from a point of view of of comfort but then I do also recognize that um, I would say illusion of power that it gives us so yes I take ple pleasure for, from seeing myself wearing high heel shoes um, I take pleasure in being seen wearing high heel shoes and what that represents in this society but at the same time I'm uncomfortable right and so I think that um, the moment, like, I, I don't know, I'll find out. We can talk again when I'm in my 50s to see if this is right. But I like that you talked about the inner kid because I think that, like you said, we have we have very several identities. And in your performance, this was very obvious. I also made this comment on Celia's class that it, it was very obvious how um, we can we can step on these different shoes. And even in our own life, we step on the more personal um shoes the more professional shoes the more inner kid shoes the more feminine masculine and so on and i think that the the key might be I, i i wonder what you think might be to find out who that central one is and wants so are that those central values and then love that one and then be being being comfortable and being and feeling uh, inspired So acting on those identities, but when you feel inspired to do so, not because you think that society demands that, that, that identity of yours. Hmm. Oh, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I, as I've evolved, in fact, it's interesting, since doing the show, I feel that there is, um, we are more than just a central self um, and perhaps the central self is uh, in me the writer the director the 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 the, the person who um, corrals all these different uh, aspects of myself together um, but um, sometimes the kid is present sometimes the um, feminine self is present sometimes the uh, business self is present but we're all um Um, they're all part of a whole and I think you can't again fragment one from the other um, and sometimes the values of the writer director that central core it's um, shared amongst uh, these different um, aspects of ourself um, and one aspect may express one of the values, or actually also bring in um, uh, the, the value um, to, to the whole. Um, and I suppose one example would be that the feminine self uh, brings in the value of um, 
connection with my body um and in a in 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 a in a sensual way which is not appropriate for the little kid the the kid brings in the connection of to the body in a playful way um in a, in a vigorous way um so um then in terms of the expression of those different aspects through the shoes um i guess i use that as a metaphor because my shoes were so um became a big part of my happiness or unhappiness um because um if i'm wearing shoes that don't fit um or that don't are not comfortable to walk in um all i'm thinking about is oh my feet hurt uh, or my feet are cold or oh no i'm going to twist my ankle here but whereas if my if I don't have to think about my feet um, and my feet are comfortable and they feel strong then a whole my my whole sense of myself becomes strong and firm um, and what is interesting about my relationship with high heel shoes is that I swore that I would never wear them again but recently just before lockdown I bought a pair of Kurt Geiger black high heels but wow. this time with a block heel rather than a stiletto because I got into um, all women's ballroom dancing um, and I wanted to dance in a skirt and again I swiped up for a skirt but I bought myself a flary skirt because when you dance the jive and you twirl and your skirt spins out like a, an umbrella and it just swirls around it is fabulous and i used to dance with my friend francois back in my 20s um, and he was amazing he would lift me up and twirl me around and uh, and it was that sort of wonderful jive hip hop uh, no not hip hop um a lindy hop type of dancing um and i really missed that and so dancing again in my 50s i thought mm. i really need to have that that visual sense um and uh, uh, of of the dance and because it doesn't feel right if you're twirling um and you're just in jeans um but sadly because of lockdown <laughs> ballroom dancing has closed and i don't know when it's going to happen again so i'm going to have to find an opportunity an occasion where i can wear this um this skirt and this these high heel shoes um out um uh, perhaps with with my partner um and um it's what is interesting is that the shoes just change the way that you look um, and again it's a societal construct but they are fab they are incredibly sexy and women in high heel shoes they can be power heels or they can be sexy heels um, and it, it is a tension between looking like you know um, uh, really powerful in that feminine way mm -hmm. um, and being comfortable Mm -hmm. And um, do you feel powerful as you're standing there in a meet, uh, you know, in, in a big presentation in high heels? I think some women uh, feel comfortable. Um, I personally would be very anxious, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe it's just practice. Maybe it's like riding a horse, mm -hmm. riding a bicycle. I don't know, but I've never felt um, empowered in that way. But who knows? Maybe now, um, uh, in terms of what I was just talking about, in terms of this alignment of the self and an expression of femininity. Uh, uh, femininity being an expression of myself maybe um, wearing my new shoes would give me a different sense of power it's a very interesting um, 
topic and again I think we can generalize it everyone has a different experience and what might be true for me and I uh, like you I also make made a decision at some point to just stop wearing it um we I think we are our own case study and we should just explore ourselves and what what makes us feel mo most comfortable and most authentic and and I want to move on to the topic of values which is slightly I think it connects with this topic as well and also explore more in depth the, your performance in your book, The Bound Feet Blues, and your experience as, as a creator. Um, do you think that you, you, you mentioned before this idea of values and the importance of, of really um, setting our values um, and living aligned with them, right? This, this, this in your experience, um, what is the role or is the, what is the intersection of values and your creative endeavors? You, do you, did you recognize that perhaps um, as your values shifted or as you realized your values, you also started dedicating more, uh, more of your life to your creativity? You have some very good questions. Um, <laughs> I would say, um, okay, well, let's just take one value, okay. um, um, success. Um, we are all generally brought up um, to want success. And when I was younger, um, uh, as a child, um, success looked like um, a good job, doing well, well, okay, start, uh, you know, doing well at school, getting um, grade A's, um, becoming first in your class. And this was, these were the values of my family and probably many professional families. Um, uh, my um, parents and my um, relations, um, where they were all lawyers, doctors, um, engineers. Um, and uh, so, you know, for the professional classes um, rise up, do well through academic endeavor mm -hmm. and achievement. And then you get a chance, particularly if you're from a, a, an impoverished background, you get a chance to go to university. If you get a scholarship um, through university, your life is transformed um, and you uh, have an opportunity to, to, to make money, uh, to look after your family um, and to do well for uh, the future generations. Um, so, it's it's a it's a completely noble um, uh, uh, value to want success. Um, I've been in a very fortunate position to be in a middle class family where I had, uh, you know, my, my my father provided for for us. We had a nice house. We had a, a good lifestyle. So I'm in a lucky position to be able to 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 have choices um, that perhaps people who may not be so lucky, um, their choices are more limited. Um, so um, for me, um, I saw success as, um, um, you know, good grades, first in my class, do well at university. Well, first of all, go to Oxbridge, uh, either Oxford or Cambridge. There was no other alternative. I would be an utter failure if I didn't do that. Um, and then good job, uh, rise up in my profession to be the top, whatever it is. Um, and I chose law. My, my father was a lawyer. Um, so then the top of that would have been, you know, a, a law partner um, and big house um, and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I realized that for me, I didn't care about money. Um, 
obviously I want and wanted and I want enough to have a comfortable life but I it didn't matter to me about the, the enormous house or the fancy Mercedes or the swimming pool or you know all those things um, and fancy restaurants it's nice to eat in a good restaurant and sometimes from time to time in a fancy restaurant but I don't need that um, to um, to be happy and I remember reading in the Sunday one of the Sunday Times magazines and of course all those magazines are all about aspirational lifestyle um, and there was this article about this woman and her family and they, you know, they were dressed beautifully and they had this own private island. Um, and I looked at that and I thought, I don't actually need my own private island to be happy. Um, and sometimes we are led down the wrong path by advertising, by marketing, by these lifestyle um, um, sort of um, uh, um, tyrants in a way who say uh, uh, to you, you know, in, in, in these lifestyle magazines, um, you, you have to look beautiful like this, you have mm -hmm. to buy these clothes uh, in order to be considered successful and happy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess I put it quite strongly in terms of tyrants, because sometimes we are not aware of it, but we look at a magazine um, and we see this, um, these expensive clothes, this beautiful woman, you think, oh, I feel really, you know, like a mess. And, and, and unless I have these things, I can't be happy. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of insidious uh, message in the background. Um, mm -hmm. So we need to become more conscious of those messages um, and to interrogate, you know, what is it that I really want for myself and what are my values? Mm -hmm. So coming back to success. So what does success look like for me? Um, I uh, dreamt of being a writer as a, uh, as a child and I really, I realized that I had to do, I had to really take my um, dream seriously when I reached 31, because I'd always said, oh, but I'll, I'll have a book published by the time I'm 30. And of course, you, that doesn't happen if you don't attend to it, and if you don't put effort in, and you don't focus on it. Um, so at 31, oh, golly, I have, I'm, I'm going to miss out on the life that I want if I don't think about this seriously. Mm -hmm. And so over time, I became more conscious and more aware of what I wanted. Um, and it sometimes aligned with the general um, cultural um, sort of values out there, my family values, but also other times it pulled away from that. So um, I would say for me now, success. So for example, that meant that I, um, I decided to give up my law career in order to write. I was on partnership track, I was 31. Um, and I thought, I'm never going to write unless I really frighten myself, scare myself stupid in order to write. So I resigned from my job. Mm -hmm. I had enough savings to last me a few years. Um, and so I, um, I gave up partnership track and I had a few years where I was writing. Um, I supported myself by doing secretarial work. And that um, is a come down from lawyer to secretary Unfortunately, in society's eyes, um, there is a, a class divide around that, um, a value divide. But for me, hey, I'm doing secretarial. It pays the bills a little bit while I do, mm. do my uh, writing. You know, there was no sort of value judgment about it. Mm -hmm. And actually, it made me a, 
I did come back to law. Um, it did make me a better lawyer because I was able to respect the secretarial and support staff in the mm. next law office that I worked at. Um, and it's important to do some of these things that are outside your comfort zone that perhaps um, uh, rock the boat, uh, that challenge the status quo in your own life so that uh, you can actually achieve, well, for me, my own version of mm -hmm. what success meant. Mm. Um, and and do you think that I'm I'm very curious about this transition? Um, as I confessed to you before, I make this question. I pose this question to myself sometimes, um, also because of all the risk that a create career in creativity entails. Uh, but but do you think that when you when you were dedicating your life primarily to to practicing law? Do you think that um, that was aligned with your values um, and to like what were your also do you think that um, that you were that your values were yours at that moment and you had that aspiration to be successful um, and that's why you were practicing or in some way you were trying to live the life of someone else in the eyes of society and I really don't mean to influence your answer I'm just genuinely genuinely curious and then the the taking taking that decision right and also um it is very scary to make that to make that shift and to commit to writing so I'm, I'm also curious about like how did it feel right and how did you gather the strength to make that transition I think with um, the early days of my law career, I was living somebody else's life. I, I was living the life that I thought I should live um, because of the um, the family um, ambition and um, uh, and wanting to do well and wanting to please my parents and my family, wanting them to be proud of me. Um, but what emerged was that I became very unhappy in myself because it was I was not I didn't have the energy to write um, and nor the self-belief to do it and by scaring myself stupid by um, giving up my job and so and and I remember the first day of um, the rest of my life after you know, after I resigned I was at home and I, and I woke up and I thought oh oh bloody hell I'm gonna have to write now um, and I, I'm gonna have to you know uh, really um, make something of this um because i've i have no safety net mm -hmm. um and i did write and i uh, produced the flame tree and i uh it was uh, accepted by hodder and Staunton, uh the, who gave me a two book deal and um that was an amazing wonderful um exciting moment in my life um and um but i realized that um actually um, and this is, uh, I was a bit embarrassed to admit this, that actually being a writer, unless you're, you know, John Grisham or J.K. Rowling, um, uh, uh, it's quite difficult to make a decent living. And I have to say, I'd got used to the lifestyle that a lawyer's salary gave to me. Um, and so I went back to law because my options are, and actually, if you think about it, this is the thing that um, the creatives don't really tell you, that as a writer, it's very difficult to earn a good living with your books, just writing. So many writers teach um, or they um, um, uh, do other things as well as writing their books and mm -hmm. or else um, you become a, com a more commercial writer. So you're writing a series or um, uh, or, or you write whatever um, 
is going to be a commercial success. Um, and for me, I realized that writing was a very personal thing and I couldn't turn it on on tap. And that was quite difficult to, to, to admit um, that I, I couldn't really be professional in the sense of, okay, every year I shall produce a book. Um, uh, and I realized that it was easier to, to, to produce legal contracts on tap <laughs> um, and that uh, by word count, um, I was going to get paid more per legal word than per, you know, um, creative writing word. Um, so I went back to being a lawyer part time mm -hmm. um, and that gave me some energy to uh, spend uh, my uh, free day, my Friday, um, uh, being creative. Not I didn't always write, but it was just enjoying my life and being um, me. Um, and as much as um, uh, um, sort of wanting time to write, it was important for me to have time just to enjoy life. And so um, four days a week meant that I had the equivalent uh, pro rata salary. And again, it meant that I had less money, mm -hmm. but that was okay. Cause life was pretty good because, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you don't you have to chase the money. Um, you can just work appropriately for an appropriate amount. Um, so I think it's, it sort of, um, then allowed me to write the books that I wanted to write or to explore the creative projects that I wanted to, to explore mm -hmm. without having the pressure of having to do it on tap. So there, there were gaps of many years in between uh, my, my, my different books and my different creative projects. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that is a excellent advice uh, in the sense that um, we should also be mindful that um, if we make if we try to uh, make a living out of our creativity, we might be stepping on very dangerous ground because I, at the end of the day, I think that our creativity, whatever, whatever creativity means for you, right? And it's, I think, broader than being a performance artist or a writer, it can be uh, creating a business even. It's just what you're able to create in this world. But I think that it's such a sacred relationship a relationship that allows one to explore the inner kid and to that curiosity, that, that childlike curiosity that we shouldn't also stress from, from that. It should be the most sacred relationship almost. So um, as an aspiring writer, what, um, what advice would you give, um, especially when it comes to managing, you know, this tension on one hand, yes, you do want to have the time to write, um, but you also want to have a comfortable life. And then there's also another factor, right? Because, and I want to bring a, a quote from you. Uh, you said that, um, well, let me read. I want to read a little bit. Um, let's see. Um, For a long time, I thought that a writer was something that you become like a doctor or a lawyer. So in the same way that other children and later on my Oxford friends wanted to become surgeons or bankers or diplomats, I wanted to become a writer. But this afternoon, looking through an old folder, folder full of writings from my childhood, 
I realized for the first time I never needed to become a writer. I have always been a writer. And, and I, I found this beautiful. Um, and I think there, there might be, at, at least I recognize this, every tr- time that I try to give a label to myself, uh, it might bring some fear associated to it. Um, so I, I want to ask you about your advice and also um, this idea that, you know, because I do feel like I, I am a writer that is in me, that energy is in me, but I think that also giving that title, that label to myself brings a lot of fear. So, so your advice on how to manage all of these tensions between you having expectations for yourself, but at the same time, that's actually writing is the thing that, or whatever it is, your creative endeavor is the thing that brings you to life. It's, it's a, it's a very tricky one because, um, um, with, writing what I've experienced and some of my friends have experienced is you meet someone and you say I'm a writer and they say oh have I heard of you um I am a published writer but no one's heard of me in in the sense that you know I'm not a household name some people would have heard of me but not enough that will make me a household name Mm um and um the other thing you could say I'm um I'm a writer. Um, And they say, oh, are you published? Um, And for someone in your situation, um, you're not published yet, but there is a sense that you're not really a a writer until you're published. Um, So I don't, so then we take that on and we go, no, I'm not really a writer. I'm I'm a fraud. Um, uh, Or I'm I'm not really as famous as JK Rowling. No one's heard of me. Mm. (laughs) Um, But that is giving our power away. Um, And I've had to, I've had to struggle with that. I have felt um, a a blow to my self-worth when people um, have said that. And they don't mean it maliciously. They just, you know, they're just curious. Um, And so, it's, it's a question of how we wrestle back that power. Um, and for each of us, it's, it's going to be tricky and it depends on how you are able to shrug and say, well, this person is just being curious. And you can say, um, so when so people say, you know, so have I heard of you? And I said, well, no, probably not. Um, yeah. and um, uh, and you you each of us needs to find um, a way to answer you know and are you published you might say well not yet I'm working towards it um, oh, I'm, a, I'm a trainee writer or I'm a baby writer or mm-hmm. to make it playful to acknowledge that you're on a journey mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and internally with yourself well I think once you've done the work on yourself, um, and if you acknowledge to yourself, well, I'm a baby writer, um, then, you know, if you say that, well, so, so you know, what do you, I'm a baby writer, well, what do you mean? So then you can start chatting about, well, I'm working on this, and I hope to get published. And by the way, do you know someone who can help me get published? You know, so you, you, you change, you reframe the conversation to your, to your, um, uh, you take control, you, you take back the power. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I I don't have any shame now mm-hmm. saying well of course I'm not J.K. Rowling so you have probably haven't heard of me 
Um, but if you want to watch my YouTube uh, video of my theatre performance, here's the link. Um, so you kind of move move through it um, and acknowledge it. Um, and yeah, not all of us can be famous. Not all of us can be um, rich. Um, and it and that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. We are who we are. We achieve what we achieve. Um, and I think it's that sense of um, being good enough in yourself and that you are on a journey and we're all on a journey i'm still on a journey um, mm -hmm. and we will be till till the till the very end mm -hmm. yeah and i'm thinking that that playfulness that you're um that you're um portraying now is very similar to or it, that curiosity and that will to try new things is very similar to also to um your desire to try new things such as doing a, a performance so do you want to talk a little bit about that did you how did it feel to you know think of yourself not only as a writer but as a, but as a performance artist <laughs> well it began um the storytelling began um in these little storytelling clubs um the story party which i think um doesn't exist anymore and, and spark london um i think that's still going on in Brixton uh, at the Ritzy um, and um, it was um, really uh, inspired by the podcast called The Moth if you've come across that um, and I remember listening to that and I was thinking oh wow they're all in these these cool people in New York telling stories um, and it, the, the tagline is true stories told live without notes um, I'd love to do that um, and there wasn't anything in London until um, Uh, Joanna Yates, um, who started Spark London, was in New York, went to see the moth and um, came back and, and created the, 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 the London version of it. Um, and so I tried out my first story there. She was running a little workshop. So I thought, hey, this is great. Go to a workshop, learn how to do it, try to do it, then do it. Um, and so I did. Um, and it's um, if you Google my name and a Spark London and uh, the story is called The Canyon, Uh, it's I think it's still up there on, on, on the internet um, and it, that became one of the scenes in Bound Feet Blues um, and there was something um, different about uh, um, writing a story to be told out loud because you have to use different language the sentences are shorter that you can do a lot with pacing intonation um, and uh, your body as well um, that was different from writing Uh, in, in a book. And I found that so exciting. It got me really hooked. So I wanted um, to try and incorporate more than just words into my story. So I went along to the Center for Solo performance that was run by Sean Bruno and Luke Dixon um, at um, Conway Hall. And it was a six-week course. It was aimed at um, Uh, theatre performance, but it's it, it's little ad, uh, advert blurb said, and for storytellers. So I went along and I didn't really know um, what I was going to try out. Um, and I'd had this title in my head, Bound Feet Blues, for ages. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I'll just write something. And so they said, well, for the first class, write, write a short, you know, 10 minute thing um, and then we'll go through it so in the class we went through it and then we got a chance to perform it and I was standing behind a mic um, and I read it um, and I tried out um, the um, 
that there's a there's a bit where I describe the Kurt Geiger stilettos and how it arches um, mm-hmm. like a woman in ecstasy because um, it, it makes your foot arch because of the way that the, the shoe sits. And I tried um, doing that arch while I was reading it, um, and I felt really embarrassed. But there were only six people, and there was a really um, warm, safe atmosphere, um, and they were like oh my God, this is really good. Um, can you step away from the microphone um, and do more of that physical stuff? And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and um, But I, I felt that my voice wasn't strong enough not to have a mic. So I asked Luke, can you suggest a voice coach? And mm-hmm. he suggested Jessica Higgs, who became ultimately the director of the theatre show. And so I went off to, to Jessica and over the course of six weeks, I had to write different little sections for each of the classes that, to try. And um, Jessica is a theatre director in herself as well as a voice coach. So um, she she gave me lots of exercises just for the voice, you know, ma, ba, pa, you know, that sort of thing, as well <laughs> as helping me um, actually interpret some of what I had written. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the things that we did, um, the... Um, I was trying to describe this this binding. Um, there's a scene in the show uh, mm-hmm. where I bind myself, and and it was a metaphor for how my social construct of myself. Um, mm-hmm. I was binding myself, um, and she said, "Well, okay, how would you do it? If if you could just do it, just you know, what does it feel like?" So I bent down and I started to bind myself um, with this imaginary binding, um, and we kept that. Um, over the course of two years as the show developed, we kept that in the show because it came out of this physical sense of binding. Um, and she's just amazing as a director and a voice coach. And so um, we, I got the chance at the end of the six weeks to do um, the, uh, a scratch night performance of what I had of Bound Feet Blues. And by, I had about three quarters of it. Um, and it ends uh, on, on my knees. Um, and, and, there's, uh, and in the show, that's where there's a break, a, a very brief break. And then the next part starts. Um, and um, Jessica came to the performance. She helped me uh, develop it. And she came to the performance. And in the in that scratch night, um, there was Annie Kwan, who was a producer uh, of the Southeast Asian Arts Festival. Um, and after the show, this is like, just as like, just some sort of dream come true. After the show, she said to me, would you like to have your show in the festival? And I was going, oh my God, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and then I said, but I have no producer, I have no director, I'm not a professional theatre performer, um, help. Um, and I asked Jessica to be my director. Um, and she brought in a producer, uh, Elderin Young, and um, the whole thing kind of snowballed. We did uh, a one-night performance for the festival. Um, that was March 2014, the, and we did that performance in October at the Tristan Bates Theatre. We invited the um, creative producers at the theatre to come to the show, and they invited us to be programmed into their program the following year. So we did a three week run. Um, And in that period, um, we were able to get sponsorship from my company where I worked. We got Arts Council funding. We got a a lighting designer, Hua Tan, who is um, an amazing, talented, well-known designer in Shanghai. Um, And um, 
uh, Crin Craxton um, was the uh, stage manager and 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 um, uh, and also did the lighting. And so we had this amazing professional team supporting my performance. Um, and we did this three week run, and it was utterly electrifying and amazing. Mm. And um, I. I couldn't have done it without these people and particularly without Jessica because um, she basically taught me how to act <laughs> while um, <laughs> while we were rehearsing um, and she did a pretty pretty good job. <laughs> mm. and, and, and how has this performance affected you in other areas of your life? Um, I think everybody should do a one-woman show. Um, for one thing, I was a bit chubby um, and when I wrote it, and there's a line at the end where I say that I've got a muffin top. And while um, uh, I was performing it, some of my friends came and said, well, what muffin top? You look really <laughs> sleek and fit. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't have a muffin top now because, because of the physical um, exertion of doing the, the, the performance, I mm -hmm. became super fit because I realized that in order to hold the stage by myself for an hour and to project my voice and to run around, um, and uh, and also in between scenes, so I'm running around and then the next scene is a very quiet scene. And I didn't want to walk into the next scene kind of going <gasps> from, from the, from the running around scene, because each scene has to be different. And so in order to do that, I had to be super fit. And I had a, a fantastic personal trainer, Christian Morgan. Um, and he gave me these exercises so that my recovery time, my recovery rate from um, this, the aerobic activity um, was absolutely minimal. Um, oh. And I've never been as fit, but as a result, um, I I was, oh my God, I'm, uh, this is, <laughs> I look, pretty fab um so I've been trying since then um to, to maintain that fitness it's a bit of a struggle well you can do another performance <laughs> um and and in terms of generally I think once you've stood on a stage in central London um holding a, you know the, the audience's attention for an hour for three weeks um it's the most terrifying experience um, and I would be in the wings waiting for my um, cue to come on and I'd be jumping at it up and down with full of nervous en energy and the opening sequence is quite tricky technically um, and, um, uh, and, and so um, I feel that once I've done that I can probably do anything um and yep. i think i'm much more confident in myself um i'm less embarrassed to say hey i think i'm fab um and um and i would encourage lots of women young women old women all kinds of women you are fab just just you know step into that um mm -hmm. and and enjoy enjoy it um and and so um it also as i said earlier reconnected me with all these different parts of myself the playful child the um the the the, the strict um rigorous mother that i could be um and uh also the feminine self um, and also the the masculine side um, because i portray some of um, some men in in, in, mm -hmm. in the show um and just to let's let's begin wrapping this up um one of the things that you also highlighted in, in this session with Celia and one of the, the, 
one of the topics that we explored, which at the end of the day is the the central theme of the Bound Feet Blues performance and book, this idea of the importance of also um, exploring our family history, because it's such a big part of ourselves, but also to honor past generations. And I thought it was beautiful when you share that in some way, uh, because you don't have children, that the performance and the book were a way for you um, to create this legacy so that your the, the, the story of your family and your story are not for, 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 for forgotten. And uh, it won't be. You already, um, you're already spreading this message and your story. And I truly think that it's an universal, universal one. And so I wanted to um, ask you if you had the opportunity to really highlight one message as um, one message for future generations, right? As part after this experience of the Bound Feet Blues um, and looking into your family history, what if there was one thing you would like to be remembered remembered for? What would it, what would it be? Um, well, that's two questions actually, because um, it, it's um, you know. <sighs> <laughs> Um, I, I, let's forget what I would be like to be remembered for. Okay. Um, but I think my legacy for future generations, um, and I think for, you know, you and your listeners and young women and young men um, uh, in your generation and like yourself, um, I would say that if you look back at your family history, it is quite mind boggling to think that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people through past generations, going all the way back to the Stone Age and before, got together to create you. Um, and it's this sort of um, upside down pyramid. Um, and, it, you know, two parents, four grandparents, eight great great grandparents, and, and so it goes. Um, and it is quite spine tingling to think of that. And when I think of the, because the oral history of my family goes back only to great, great grandparents. And beyond that, it's lost in the mists of time. Mm -hmm. But there are these people whose stories are not known um, uh, and, and uh, you know, scores, hundreds of thousands of them. Um, and they came together to, I have this window into the past. Um, mm -hmm. And in a way, I didn't want to research the technically, when were they born? Where were they born? Because it's the stories that pass on. It's the stories that my great, great grandfather told his son who told his son, and so it goes. And then great grandmother told her daughter and and so on and um and it is it, it it these stories can inspire us um to be connected to history that is bigger than all of us mm -hmm. and when you think about it that way it is quite amazing um to be alive um and to be in this moment talking with you mm -hmm. um and um, and all of us have that. And that sense of, so what am I going to do with my life? Um, and I thought that I was going to have children. Um, and this is a nice way to round, round up, I think, because we started off with storytelling, um, that the stories that I heard. And I hoped and dreamed that I would have children of my own, that I would also 
step into the shoes of my mother and grandmother and tell stories to my daughter and granddaughter and, and so on. Um, and that I guess I would be remembered by them in that continuum um, and take my part in the river of life. Um, um, but um, I, I don't have children of my own. Um, and so, as you said, I, I start, I wanted somewhere to place these stories. And mm -hmm. so it, um, initially as oral stories. Um, so Bound Feet Blues was born and then now, now the book. Um, and I suppose what I learned from my mum and my grandma is that I'm, I'm fab, I'm special, I'm, I'm loved by them. Um, regardless of all the difficulties that I might have had in terms of finding my identity. Um, when I came out to my mum, and that was one of my great fears that I would be rejected by my family, but they've embraced me. And I know that that's very, very fortunate for me, and that there are many people out there who don't have the same um, experience and who um, who can face um, abuse and, um, and, and, and violence because of their sexuality. Um, so I really recognize that. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, um, that I was very, very fortunate. Um, uh, but nonetheless, regardless of how people outside all over you, whether all, all around, whether it's your own family, or whether it's other people, um, they cannot take away from you, your specialness, your uniqueness, um, your fabulousness in all that you are. Um, and um, we are brought up to look for affirmation and recognition from others. Um, and that's quite natural and there's nothing wrong with it. But it, the problem comes when we give the power away, that we feel that we are nothing because other people ugh, dismiss you and say you're nothing. Um, and it goes back to what we're talking about, about saying you're a writer. Mm -hmm. um, um, we have to um, remember that no matter what, we are unique, we are special, we are fab. Mm -hmm. And sucks uh, boo to anybody who thinks otherwise. You know, and I was, and I was just, as you were talking about your, your family just now and about your story, um, I was imagining how at the end of the day, you recognizing your uh, uniqueness is also uh, allowing for your family history to evolve in time. And so you're kind of doing justice to your lin lineage because you're creating uh, or making space for new identities um, to be accepted for future generations to come, not only in your lineage, but in all, um, in all families from all generations. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I want to tell you uh, when we close this, I. I, I, I told you that after your session, you really motivate me to look into my family history. Um, and just yesterday, I was having lunch with my grandma. Wow, wonderful. Uh, yep. And she was opening up about some stories about my family that I had no idea about. And I was just amazed. Um, on like, so I think that sometimes we want to have our independence and we want to focus on our lives. But opening our eyes to our family history it's what you were saying can brings us an immense sense of purpose and wanting to advance and to evolve um, as human beings and to self-actualize ourselves. Um, so thank you.
for doing that, for, for, for telling your story and inspiring so many other women to step onto their shoes and so many other shoes, but also men and, and all kinds of people. And my last question before we um, close this uh, is the question that I always ask in this podcast. How do wait, you... wait, wait, before we get there, tell me, tell thank me, tell you. Um, and um, I hope you will continue the conversation with your and have many, many more meals with your grandma and, and many others in your family. That's well, wonderful. Next week, I'm bringing the, the mic with me. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so last question. How do you make sure you're not sleepwalking through your waking state? How do you make sure that you're living your most examined life? That is a very important question. Um, and I think there have been phases in my life where I have sleptwalked through things. Um, I think... Um, well, it's 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 being curious um, with yourself, but also the world. Um, there have been times when I've been um, um, depressed, sad, frustrated. Um, um, I think depression is a is a really good sign that something's not working. Um, and to be rather than just going, oh, I'm depressed, let's pop a pill. Be curious. Um, have a explore it um, and um uh, with with a professional with a therapist or a counselor and i've been in therapy at different stages of my life um there's no shame in it because i always take the very practical view if you've got a law problem go to a lawyer you've got a financial problem go to an accountant you've got yeah. uh, an emotional issue um uh, like depression or a psychological issue like depression go to a professional um and it's a safe space where you can explore um, what's happening for you and be supported um, in your journey to uh, to wellness um, and and that is um, when you're aware when you're curious you say, well, well you know, why is this happening what's happening what do I do now how do I um, and, uh, and and actually not struggling against it but going into it um, and exploring it and then you come out the other end um, and Actually, uh, there are um, um, going into that self-awareness, particularly also with therapy, uh, it can be very creative. Um, there are uh, uh, therapies that um, you know ask you to to draw or to make music or to write. Um, and um, those those are really good ways to accessing a, a connection, a dialogue with yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and also be curious about the world and, and the other, the, the others in your life. Um, and if someone is being difficult um, or um, somehow that friendship or that relationship is not working, be curious. Um, not, not in the way of, you know, why are you being like this? Um, but actually, well, what's going on? What is, you know, what's it like to be them? What is it like to step into, you know, if you step into their shoes, what's going on for them? Um, and, um, it, it, it just keeps you awake and alive and wanting to find out more each moment. I'm just waiting for my dog to finish barking. <laughs> Thank you, Young May. It was a pleasure to have you on this podcast and we couldn't have ended better. Thank you. Thank you, Carlotta. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And now he finished working. <laughs>